0: is a cliche that may come to mind when you scroll through the Instagram of today's guest. She's swimming with whales in crystal clear water, kayaking through icebergs with penguins in Antarctica, surfing in Indonesia. But what that old living the dream cliche fails to convey and what Instagram is too superficial to detail is the years of hard work and the amount of ingenuity that goes into building a dream that someone can live. Free diving with colossal whale sharks is not a possibility without having endured the rigors of years of breathwork training, and getting barreled in Indonesia isn't an option until you've persevered frigid dawn patrols at home for probably a decade and have bounced off the reef dozens of times. But yes, if you have passions that you pursue doggedly, and you can find a fiscally viable way to pursue those passions, then you might be able to take a couple of photos along the way that reflect a dream that you once had for yourself as a kid. And if those pursuits are noble enough, you might even be able to make a meaningful difference for individual people and animals. And if your vision is big enough, you might actually do that for humanity and animals on a macro scale. And so it's with that in mind that I'd like to introduce you to Brinkley Davies. But before we get into it, I'd like to acknowledge that today's show will be void of ad breaks thanks to Rourke. So no mid-show interruptions, just nonstop Brinkley Davies for the duration of the show. And as a thank you to Rourke, please consider them for your holiday gifting this season, or if you're just ready to gear up for your next adventure. In fact, actually, if you aren't already one of Brinkley's quarter of a million followers on Instagram, follow her to see some of Rourke's women's line of clothing being put through the paces on safari in Africa, swimming with whales in Tonga, and on expedition in Antarctica. Brinkley's R&D in the clothing actually goes as direct feedback towards the design and the materials. You can learn more, you can get geared up, and you can also support us at rork.com, R-O-A-R-K, and you can save 15% with our promo code, Splendor15. Thanks again to Rourke for making today's show possible and for making it ad-free. So without further ado, my name is David Scales, and here's my conversation with marine biologist, surfer, and environmentalist, Brinkley Davies. Enjoy. My baby doesn't hit me, my baby does me, my baby doesn't <laughs> Um, I'm going to kick off just by asking you about freediving, actually, uh, which is sure. something that I know nothing about, but it fascinates me just because the way that I've heard people talk about it, it really almost sounds like a spiritual experience more than, you know, an athletic activity. So can you explain what the attraction is and what I'm hearing people talk about when they talk about it?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, free diving is basically breath hold, um, underwater, <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of different parts of it and there's a lot of uh, different reasons why people do it. I got into free diving naturally through my surfing um, and then also through like my work in filming animals underwater. And I just wanted to be able to stay down longer to film them basically. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's, it's a lot for me, it was already like a, a lot more peaceful way to, be underwater than scuba diving because scuba diving there's a lot of noise there's bubbles you've got all this gear on um and with free diving it's it's just you um and so I originally got into it for the like practical aspect um often where I was diving and you just forget you're holding your breath at all because you're focusing on like amazing marine life underwater um which is like a the best the best thing about freediving for me is getting to like be underwater with marine life and feel like in in tune with the ocean really um and from there I did a lot of training like I've done a lot of training over the course of the last decade I guess um I did my instructors which was like a quite intensive uh course where we have to tick off so many requirements and you're learning about all the different physiological responses your body has to breath hold, which um when people talk about free diving in a meditative state, it definitely, it definitely is, especially if you're diving on a line, which is if we're diving for depth, um, we'll set a buoy on the surface, and then there'll be a line that drops down to depth with a marker. Um, and that line is actually like a safety blanket. So that's like Um, what you hold on to or what you're connected to with the lanyard so that you can't drift away from it if there's current or anything like that. And often when we're practising equalising or different techniques or learning about the pressure gradients in the beginning, quite often you close your eyes um, and then you're experiencing things like buoyancy changes um, and things going on in your body that you're kind of only realizing because you're just kind of focusing inward as you're going through that motion down the line. Um, and it is very, it's very, very peaceful. Um, and yeah, I, I dive most days for fun. Like I go out and get off the boat and film and swim around with stuff. Um, I'm not like trying to go deep often, but, uh, every now and then i'll like assist on a course where we're doing a bit more depth work and it's yeah it's very relaxing actually <laughs> it's like yeah. it it does it's obviously very physically demanding but um it's definitely 80% mental i would say
0: so yeah beyond the limitations of your lung capacity what are the physiological or psychological factors that are limiting your time underwater
1: so we go through what's called a mammalian dive response or it's called the mammalian dive reflex, which is basically so I'm sure like in the surf um, you may have seen like dolphins and seals and they're able to hold their breath for a really long time. And that's because they have adapted over time to be able to their bodies are able to withhold a certain amount of carbon dioxide. So usually we breathe in oxygen and we exhale out CO2. Um, and when you hold your breath your body is like you feel this discomfort and that discomfort in the interim like in the beginning is not from you not having enough oxygen it's from you not expelling the waste product which is carbon dioxide so your dive your dive response um, which is something that you can train over time is basically like your body's ability to withhold co2 and be be comfortable with it and understand that that discomfort that you're feeling is from that. For example, um, you will feel like tightness in certain areas and you at some point will feel contractions in your diaphragm and those contractions are your body actually saying, okay, I'm still okay and you have so many contractions and then you'll be like, okay, I want to go up now. Um, And as long as you feel clear in the head, your vision's fine, you feel your um, hands and feet and everything is like feeling really fluid, um, those contractions are actually okay. Um, Another thing that like heavily affects the dive response is pressure. So obviously as we go down in the ocean, you're going down different pressure gradients and atmospheres And that affects everything so on the surface your lungs are like this and then as they go down they're just getting smaller smaller and smaller and the biggest pressure change is within 10 meters and then after that it it gets a bit more um gradual so that that first 10 meters is actually the biggest pressure change where you're like whoa this feels really different and i think that the um the most obvious one when you get into free diving or when people do is is uh equalizing your sinus and ears so because that's a space in your body that is um it, it's not flexible so it's a it's a fixed volume area so you have to use the air in your lungs and chest that you have also um, to equalize that air space so that it can handle the pressure as you go down um, but on the way up you don't have to do that because you're coming back up to positive pressure if that makes sense. <laughs> Um, it's kind of a bunch of different things that, that become really easy, um, over time because you're naturally like, okay, this is what's happening. You might go for a dive down. You're like, "I, I understand what's happening to my body. And then over time, you just get this really good understanding of how your body reacts to breath hold, how your body reacts to pressure. If you're not feeling great one day, like you definitely notice if you've like not had enough sleep or dehydrated. Um, and then other days you feel like you could just keep going. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. I think I've never done something that's so much made me understand what my body needs or what it's capable of some days and other days it just says, no.
0: (laughs) Fascinating. Yeah. Do Do those, um, lessons learned translate to life on land?
1: Oh, definitely. With with so many things, um, I've been like in quite a few situations in the surf. I'm so sorry. My emails keep popping up, and I don't know how to turn that sound off.
0: I don't either. I <laughs> I think we can just deal with it. Probably okay. Try to edit them out if they come in between words. Yeah, sure.
1: Um, so I would say, uh, especially um, when I've done my training with. Free diving, where I am trying to push past certain certain things to get better, where I'm in a controlled situation, the coping mechanisms and the mental um, kind of mindset I go into in those times has definitely helped me with uh, things like being in heavy situations in the surf, being in high-stress situations, Um and really particularly being in, being in situations where I'm in a lot of pain, um, I've dislocated my shoulder in the surf a bunch of times, which is horrific, um, in situations where it's just very much not ideal. And I've, I've definitely used like my breath work and like, um, those kind of strategies to deal with, uh, really chronic pain, like, and get through, get through those times. So, um, yeah. And, and actually like a lot of the breath work stuff we learn, I used to fall asleep um, and things like that too. So yeah.
0: I'll probably have a deeper, deeper sleep as a result too, or better sleep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, if you're breathing, like you learn a lot about um, how stress affects your body and like a lot of us do a lot of things in, in our day and including myself and freediving for me is like my outlet where I can go and do it and think about nothing else. As soon as I'm diving, I think about it's the only place really where my head's like clear. Um, and, yeah, it's you learn to breathe through your diaphragm as a habit instead of your chest, um, which I've especially noticed has helped so much in a lot of different parts of life. It just naturally, even when you don't notice you're doing it, you kind of it becomes a habit to breathe through your diaphragm. Um, And also with your ears and your sinuses, like in the surf, I think because it's become habitual for me to equalize constantly when I'm like having a wipeout or something like that, it's like I naturally do it without noticing um, because I'm so used to equalizing, which definitely I think has saved my ears a lot in like wipeouts where I may have like hurt my eardrums.
0: What's your, like how long can you hold your breath comfortably?
1: Um I mean I don't test it regularly. <laughs> yeah. I test it regularly because I don't love doing static breath holds. I definitely love doing dynamic breath holds which means a static breath hold in freediving is basically like laying in a pool with someone your safety there um and holding your breath and going through the motions of getting contractions it's basically your ability to push through contractions um and I mean, my breath hold of that is about four and a half, maybe five minutes if I pushed it. Um, there are a lot of my friends and a lot of freedivers I know that will push way past the point of comfort in like a static breath hold to get the numbers. And I am not about like doing that if I don't have to. Whereas I I love like doing a dynamic breath hold in a pool where you're, say, doing a an 100 meter swim where you're moving. Obviously, your body uses a lot more energy. Um, but you're focused on your technique, and it's it's a lot more pleasant. Um, but regularly we do dives where we're, you know, it can be one and a half, two minutes where we're filming with like an animal underwater, and um, it's more my favorite part of free diving, and I guess where I use my skill the most is going down and coming up for a limited amount of time and then going back down again. For example, if there's an animal I'm filming or free diving with um, and I'm like, obviously they can stay down a lot longer and I'm like, okay, I've got to go up now. But then it's like, you got to do your recovery breaths and get back down there to go again while it's still hanging around. And that's kind of up here. A lot of the diving we do is um, high CO2 work where that CO2 is built up and we're not having a full recovery Um, which is very similar to surfing. So like if you're getting a hole down, you're coming up only getting three breaths in and then there's another wave. Um, And that's kind of was my entry into freediving as opposed to if I go out on a line with other instructors that are advanced as well, I will relax completely on the surface where I almost feel like I could fall asleep. And then I'll go for a dive and come up and feel equally as relaxed and feel like it's a very relaxing situation as opposed to often we're jumping off like a tinny and and it's like choppy and there's waves and we're swimming around with marine life that swims super fast (laughs) um and it's kind of like high energy whereas if I go out and dive on a line it's very like very calm and and peaceful but um but yeah just it just depends on the day
0: (laughs) it all sounds beautiful Uh, And even though I'm inclined to like want to dive in and learn how to do it, where I live isn't nearly as beautiful as where you live. And so I could see that, I could see that being such a huge draw as well.
1: Yes, Um, absolutely. It's, um, we're so lucky here and I grew up in South Australia where it's, it's colder. There's bigger sharks. Um, I mean, we got pretty big sharks here, but I grew up surfing in SA where it's colder and I did get into freediving, but it is, it's a lot uh, more accessible here for sure. And it's a lot more inviting when it's sunny and the water's not 12 degrees.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Where, where did you grow up exactly?
1: Uh, So in South Australia, um, I grew up between the Florio Peninsula and the Yorke Peninsula, which are both like beautiful parts um, of the South Australian coastline. There's like good waves and a lot of marine life. Um, it's very much like remote kind of coastal country-ish living, yeah.
0: What did your parents do there?
1: Uh, so a few different things. <laughs> um, they, My mum has worked for like the bank for quite a few years, but before that both my parents were involved actually in a fresh seafood business that they ran. Um, and then after that, they my dad did, like, horticulture for a bit where you supply, like, the the filler plants to bunches of flowers to all the different florists. Um, he did landscaping. We always joke that he's done, like, a job out of every letter in the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, now he runs, like, a holiday rental business. And, yeah, mum is she works for AMZ, which is, like, one of the bigger banks in Australia and both of them both of them love all the all the things that I'm into too um dad surfed his whole life and Mum's like right into snorkeling and actually has been getting into free diving lately too which is so cool
0: wow very cool so did they introduce you to surfing
1: yes yep we um that was very much my childhood my brother and I both surfed from like a really young age yeah we're at the beach a lot like my whole family
0: Where do you live now, and how did you end up there?
1: I live in northwest WA. It's a town called Exmouth. Um, It's on the Ningaloo Reef. So, Ningaloo Reef is like World Heritage listed uh, fringing reef, which is honestly I've been all over the world, and I think that our reef is the most pristine for many reasons, but. Um, I first came up here when I was at university. I studied marine biology at university and um, I also was trying to get all my qualifications like my dive masters, um, my, like scuba dive masters, my commercial skipper's ticket because um, all of those things allow you to get jobs in the marine industry. And so I got a I got a volunteer role up here on one of the whale shark boats. Um and so I did that, and then I went back and finished uni, came back up, and I worked as a guide um, for many years with whale sharks, um, manta rays, and humpback whales. So then I wow. was coming up here and fell in love with the place and and never left.
0: <laughs> there, it seems like a good choice. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, was an, there was an American naval base there, wasn't there?
1: Yes. So it's so crazy because there is still... It's it's not active, like it's not an active base, um, like US base in a way, but it is active in that like it's very high security that we have um, like a very low frequency tower set up. It's like I think the second biggest in Australia, like a satellite communication station. Um, It's super crazy though because it's very much like a marine tourism town, but that base, it's got like an abandoned bowling alley Football field, like college size swimming pool, um, and it's still active. As in a company called Raytheon runs it, and they, it's protected by <laughs> the Australian Federal Police. And it's like very, it a lot goes on inside there, but like it's not active. As in they used, they used to have like American cars, um, and it was like they used U.S. dollars in there. But that was kind of like 50 years ago, but it's still active, but not in that, not in um that way kind of thing.
0: So what's Raytheon doing there?
1: Well, it's Raytheon are like this huge company. Um no one really knows. <laughs> so it's <laughs> I think
0: like they build weapons.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. So it's like uh, well, it's a military base. So in Exmouth, you've got like the town, which is very much like everyone's like environmentally friendly (laughs) and the the coast and the ocean is like incredible here. And that's the draw card. Like we have a huge tourism industry, but then the military base, um, it has equally as much importance to the area, I guess, like in a military sense. Um, and so they have the communication station and then they have multiple other, multiple other bases, um, around and old defense land. That's like, you know, allowed on. Um, and to be honest, I don't know what goes on in there,
0: <laughs> but it's a real juxtaposition. It sounds like absolutely. Two yeah. But
1: what's funny is the Navy pier, the x Navy pier, which is uh, non-operational like has been for many years is top 10 scuba dive sites in the world. Um, and you like go through the base to enter the pier and you have to go with a certain dive company and, um, and it's such an incredible dive site because it's been left alone for so many years. There's like huge gropers and cod there, and and like um, nurse sharks and rays, and it's absolutely insane. Uh, and people travel from all over the world just to dive the Navy Pier. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's pretty funny that it's um yeah that it's the way it is. But I guess it's just the history of the town.
0: Yeah, it, I mean honestly. Kind of adds a really interesting element to the town.
1: Exactly, uh, it's interesting, but it's also like our our airport is um like there's an air force base at the airport, but our our airport it's a commercial airport, and we fly in all the tourists fly in. And if you look around when you land, there's like bunkers everywhere, like full military bunkers. Like it, people must fly in and be like, "Where am I landing?" But um, totally. Yeah. Exmouth as a town itself is very safe. Like it's like an, it's got a really nice feel to it. It's, it's a, it's strange. It's a strange contrast.
0: Totally. Yeah. Well, talking about the um, uniqueness and the kind of, uh, how much wildlife there is. Mm. I've been blown away by the whale footage that you post on Instagram, and you'll mention something casual like, "Oh, afternoon swim," as if the whales are just—I don't know if they live there. If that's just part of their migratory... yeah. No,
1: so every every year we have um, a huge migration, like the same migration of humpback whales that come here every season. Um, the first ones show up in about June, and they go. So we live on a peninsula, right? And the Ningaloo Reef is on the west side of the peninsula. Um, and they come up and they swim up from the Antarctic feeding grounds to warm waters to have their calves. And so they're coming up and they're having their babies and they're nursing and they're playing. Um, and it's crazy time of year because, mm. sorry, they they are, it's like really special time of year, but they become very vulnerable in the way that, like they've obviously got a newborn, <laughs> a newborn calf in an area that, We have um, orca as well, like orcas and tiger sharks and everything. And um, every year the orcas will actively hunt like a number of the humpback calves. Um, And it happens every year and quite a few of the humpbacks, like the mums travel with what's called an escort male, um, which is basically like a protector of them and like a bit of a partner. And what happens is the the calf will stay with the mum and then the orcas will often go to attack the calf and every now and then the orcas will get a calf and then also sometimes the humpbacks will defend themselves and because the, they're much bigger obviously and the calves and them will get away. And so that all goes on on the west side and then <laughs> around now, like August, September, they'll swim around the top of the peninsula into our gulf. So the Exmouth Gulf, which is equally as um, ecologically important, so it's like unique, super unique mangrove systems, super unique nursing ground, um, what, like one of its kind in Australia for not only the humpback whales but dugongs, um, lots of different species of sharks and rays and turtles. And right now, like August September, those whales just sit in the Gulf with their calves. Mm or in pods of adults and they just play all afternoon and this year in particular they are super curious so like we've been going out on the stand-up paddleboard or the jet ski or the boat and just turning the engine off and you can hear whales for like as far as as far as you could imagine they are everywhere and they'll just pop up right next to you um and it's it's so so special. It's like one of the one of the main reasons I wanted to live here because it's it's just such an incredible, um, like it's such an incredible part. like that uh, combines the how special the Ningaloo is on the other side. The only um, the only issue at the moment is that because the Gulf doesn't have World Heritage listing like the West Side does. Um, which protects it from things like industrialization we constantly get threats from like oil and gas or like commercial companies that are trying to like dredge it and put in like things that would just destroy the ecosystem so a lot of us here are really fighting at the moment to get more protection for the gulf side because it's just as important as the west side like at the moment there's like a salt mine they're trying to Literally dredge a mangrove system that's full of incredible marine life to put in a salt mine where the salt would be exported overseas and not benefit us at all. Um, and Exmouth itself in the northwest of Australia is one of the only regions in this whole um, area that isn't ruined by oil and gas ports, and and so we're wow. really fighting to keep it as is because we've got a like a worldly renowned tourism industry. Um, and we're, we're really fighting to like protect it and keep it as is and not let all the big corporations come in and just like take it, you know, and wreck it for us. Yeah. So it's, um it's very, very special, but we're all constantly like trying to protect it.
0: <laughs> well, those Instagram clips um, you use the word, the whales are curious and, that's what I felt those Instagram clips did so successfully was for all the nature documentaries that I've watched, professionally made nature documentaries from my childhood on through to whatever on Netflix now, none of it really captured the character and the personality of the whales as mm. as as simply as you did, you know, just to see that curiosity and the playfulness in them is like, oh my gosh, they yeah. are like very relatable, you know, human, human-like
1: so so much so and yeah i have the last few nights especially i've so much footage especially um it happens a lot where if i like as we take our dogs out on the on the boat and the ski and it's like sometimes the whales and dolphins like want to say hi to to them and they'll come up and i have this photo of of my dog and she's like standing on the end of the jet ski and the whale like and that like engine software just floating in the whale like is on its back and like looking at her, but on its back, like a metre under my jet ski. And it's so crazy because they're so uh, spatially aware for such a like a 40, you know, ton animal. They're so spatially aware. And so that, it's like they know exactly where you are all the time and you'll just be waiting for them to pop up and they can just like, and they can vanish so quickly for something so big as well.
0: I mean, can you imagine how blown his or her mind is seeing a dog?
1: Yeah, I know. And I feel like because everyone takes their dogs on such good adventures up here. And um, quite a few of my friends have footage the same of like whale sharks coming up and like meeting dogs. And like, it's so it's so funny. But yeah, um, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool spot to live. That's for sure.
0: Um, Do you remember? like there being a first initial cause of concern environmentally that you had growing up that kind of sparked your passion for environmentalism?
1: I mean, there's so many because I've cared about everything like forever. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I mean, environmentally, I think one of the main things I first learned was how hectic um, like commercial fishing is on the ocean Um, and I learned that through surfing and seeing marine life entangled in like ghost nets and commercial grade nets, um, and living where we do the ocean's so pristine and we have like a really healthy ecosystem. And even in the healthiest ecosystem, you're still seeing, you know, seals and whales entangled. Um, and seeing that combined with learning what I did through my parents operating like a commercial seafood business um it was pretty confronting so that was like one of the main things like my a lot of my family still eat fish and like fish that they catch themselves and like here in town uh quite a lot of my friends don't eat animal products at all they're plant-based and or every now and then they might spear one like huge pelagic fish that they can eat for like a really long time I haven't eaten fish for a long time because I, I just don't like killing things, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but like that up here, it's cool because there's quite a few people that are quite sustainable with that with their choices, but on a global level, like fishing, it's what I've seen in my lifetime with, with fishing impacts is crazy because obviously, um, I've also been involved in a lot of like plastic pollution and marine debris stuff, and and sixty percent of the plastic in the ocean is commercial grade nets like drift nets, ghost nets, um, long liners with hooks, and it just has this like circular system where if something becomes entangled at sea, those companies will just will just cut that line and dump it, um, mm. and it just takes it takes victims like forever, like everything you can imagine. It's just so wasteful. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realise, like if you go out to dinner and you don't know where your like prawns or fish is coming from, it's that's pretty bad. Like um, at least if you know who's caught it or something, you you know that the impact that it's had and it's like really direct, you know, there's been no bycatch. Because um, especially in the last decade, there's been a lot of awareness with marine debris and plastics and trying to reduce our use, like which I 100% vouch for. Um, and a huge advocate for but i think a lot of people will you know stop using a plastic straw or a or a single use coffee cup before they cut out commercial commercial um fish and yes like without realizing that that's the biggest the biggest impact like everywhere from antarctica all through indonesia like it's the most of the pollution is, is from that and the damage done to like other species in the in the marine ecosystem. Um and so that's something I always try to like e- educate people on. But like uh I've I've always been about because I've grown up in areas where it's like heavily reliant on industries that I don't agree with. Um I've always tried to subtly like Inspire people instead of making enemies, kind of thing. Like I've just, you know, I've done my thing and been like, well, I've done this and kind of in- inspire change in that way, and and hope that other people like follow suit and realize realize impacts over time. Um, and yeah, that's I think that's been one of the biggest things. It's just it's so heartbreaking, especially to see things like whales entangled. Um, that are just completely helpless and seals once they're, once they are got something circular around them without human interference, like us cutting it off, it, it's pretty much a death sentence. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I've been involved in a lot of environmental causes and issues and um, animal rights stuff. Um, I could talk for days. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: this is the right platform for that. <laughs> um, when you You went to school and you got a degree in uh, marine biology, correct? Yeah, yep. What was the career path or what did you want to do with the degree?
1: So I always knew that I didn't want to do anything like traditional um, because university usually leads to like one of a few paths. One of them is like academia where, you know, you may become a lecturer or I go ahead and do a PhD and you have one research project. at university, I had a specific interest in both sharks and, and toothed whales, so like orcas, pilot whales. Um, and if I was going to do secondary study, like an honours or a or a doctorate, I wanted to do it in one of those two. But during my last year at university, I was doing a lot of volunteering. Um, I started to get opportunities with, like, free dive stuff and surf stuff where I was able to be, like, more on-ground Um you know, helping or, like, helping with animal stuff um, and marine conservation hands-on. And I was like, oh, well, I could kind of continue down this path and see where it leads, or I could go back to university and study one thing. Um, And I kind of had some advice from other people that was like, well, if you do this, if I get a project and stay at university, I might be in the field, like, two weeks out of the whole year. um. It doesn't lead to a good income generally. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to start projects of my own one day, but I wanted to be armed with the knowledge like that I learned at university in the way of knowing how to create research projects, knowing how to read research papers, um, knowing how to analyse them, um, but while also understanding that, the world's constantly changing. So like everything that I've read at university and learned is now outdated. Um, and I think that's where nowadays, because information gets to us so quick and we can spread it so quick, which has detrimental effects, but it also means that we're able to act on things like so much faster now, like causes that are needed, like that need help. Um, I kind of went down this path of being able to tell stories where where I'm like out and having these experiences with animals and I felt like I had way more of an impact that way Um, and that kind of led to multiple opportunities to tell different stories. Some of them were sad, some of them were positive um, and kind of have an impact that way and use my like expertise in different areas um, outside of marine as well. Like I've done a lot of wildlife stuff that's land-based too.
0: Yeah. Well, and at some point you deployed the power of social media in this effort as well, right? Yeah, Yeah. and
1: social media started and just like anything else, like I just always saw it as a platform and a tool to raise awareness and to tell a story and to like inspire people because I think that a lot of people just don't know what's going on Um, and if you don't know, you're never going to change your ways and a lot of people don't realize the positive impact they can have by just making a few simple changes Um, and for me personally like if I see a video of like an animal that's like makes me super happy it like changes my day and I'm always like what I'm seeing maybe like a lifetime goal for someone or maybe like a dream to see that for someone on the other side of the world or or maybe someone's not as lucky as I am and lives nowhere near the ocean and dreams of that and I always thought it's nice for me to share that like on social media where people can maybe be inspired to help from afar.
0: I, I'm i impressed um, because the way that I kind of see it from the outside looking in is when I was a kid, marine biologists sounded cool. Yeah. And then like you said, <laughs> once I looked into it, the career paths really didn't seem appealing to me, even though the yeah. subject matter was. Yeah. And so the way that you've kind of crafted your career uh, feels like a childhood dream, actually.
1: Well, it it is, but it's... Um... It's funny because it's been like such a gradual um, like collaboration between all the things that I love to do and I just always prioritised what I love to do and I was like, I'm going to make this my job <laughs> and instead of, you know, being like, oh, I'll do this and it's not what I want to do but it pays well or whatever um, because that it, it ends up being the priority, right? And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep going until I really love what I'm doing. And now I guess the majority of what I do is stuff that like really is epic um, by my standards. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's hard to explain because it's been so many stepping stones to like where I am today, for example, um, of doing so many different things that have been like challenging or, or um, you know, there's been times where I've been like unsure about things and it's all of those experiences have led to it's just all been collaborative, um, so it's hard when someone asks oh. what my job is because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah. how long do you have?
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, you said that you do projects on land too. Yeah. Who who is who is Bungie?
1: So actually, um, I actually just <laughs> finished writing a book um, about Bungie. So Bungie is a kangaroo, actually a wallaroo so there's a bunch of different species of kangaroos which a lot of people don't realize um and she's what's called a euro what we call a euro roo which are like a smaller stockier species of kangaroo in australia that have like rounder noses and rounder ears and they're built for like cliff lines and more hilly areas um and growing up in like rural australia it's very very common i mean like it's the same as in the states or whatever mm-hmm. where people- Sorry, my dog's trying to get in my office. So I'm just going to let her in. That's okay.
0: Yeah, please. Come on.
1: She's got an injury, so she's like extra sooky at the moment. Um. I see. Yeah, so in rural Australia, it's sadly so common. Uh, like people hit kangaroos in cars all the time on country roads and also kangaroos are like shot by farmers and like actively hunted. It's like the situation is, is not like what, The rest of the world portrays Australian, how Australians are with kangaroos. Um, They're really, really not treated well. And I've always loved them. And growing up where I do, a lot of people like will hand raise orphans, like kangaroo orphans that are hit by cars or from hunting. Um, And I have been involved in like wildlife care for a long time. And in my early 20s, I was living in like coastal South Australia um, with my partner at the time and we were in a car and um like that collided with a rue like so he was driving and it was nighttime and it's a lot of the situations are unavoidable which is so sad but um Bungie was thrown like the Joey was tiny and thrown out of the pouch which happens too um and the saddest thing is that most people don't stop they will just hit something and they just they'll either be like, nope, I don't want to deal with that, and they and they won't even stop at all to check on the adult kangaroo or if there's a baby. Um, and so that's been one huge thing that I've always advocated for is, like, stopping and checking because often it's unavoidable if you hit something, um, but it's never, like, there's never an excuse for not stopping and checking. And anyway, so Bungie was, like, from an accident and she was this tiny tiny little thing like like this big that had no fur her eyes were just open um and I'd never had a kangaroo joey handed to me or that was that young and a lot of the wildlife carers that I spoke to were like oh you know she probably won't survive she's too young um and anyways I gave it like my absolute all like it's like a They need to be fed every two hours. They need round-the-clock care um, for like months and months. It's kind of like having a baby. (laughs) Um, And because in South Australia you're not allowed to re-release hand-raised kangaroos for for many reasons. Um, But they, so she became very attached to me um, and my goal was always to transition her at some point to like an open plain sanctuary where she's going to be safe um, and have other kangaroos around her. Um, because in SA where I was at the time, uh, there are a lot of rulings around re-releasing them because they will never survive on their own. Like kangaroos are very family orientated. So for example, where I live now, if you hand raised a kangaroo, you need to hand raise it with another one. If it's going to be re-released, because if you were to release it on its own, it would either probably get predated on by something or they die of a condition called myopathy, which is which is where stress basically takes over your body and an and animal will die from that. It happens in kittens and dogs too. Um, but because with Bungie, she wasn't going to be re-released to the wild. She very much, like I was very much mum. <laughs> and she actually grew up with my dog who's in my office right now. So they had like a special special friendship and for two years of my life it was like she came everywhere with me she hung in her pouch when I worked she hung in the pouch in my car while I surfed she came come on the beach um everything it was like really unique because we had such a special bond but during the course of raising her I learned so much about the threats that they face and how people are to them and Anyways, after two years, because I wasn't in a position to, like, I didn't have any land or a house I owned or anything I wanted, and I was at the start of my, like, traveling career, I wanted to get her into a home while she was younger, where she would have, feel comfortable, and that's a really hard transition, because it's like dropping a kid off at school and being like, okay, this is your home now. Um so it took me like 6 months to slowly transition her to this sanctuary with with this really lovely couple that I met that already had rescue kangaroos um and I used to like lay in her little pen with her and then over time she became really comfortable there made other little kangaroo friends um but the craziest part is that like they it's such a lifelong bond like I can go back and see her um after not seeing her for like a year and call her from across the paddock and she will run to me and she does not go to anyone else. She doesn't let anyone else touch her. Um, It's just me. They're very much like a one-person animal, but it makes me happy because she's got like a little friend there that's the same species as her and they live the dream. She just lounges around all day. They've got like um, eight acres of like beautiful beautiful like open enclosure um and anyways i got a offered to write a book about her which uh actually comes out on october the 31st and i just got the first i'll actually grab it it's right here (laughs) i just got it i just got it delivered like two days ago (laughs) it's it's um it's a 200 page book um
0: amazing
1: which is gonna be released on the 31st of October. So it's like, it's like a coffee table book where like it's, it's like got lots of pictures. There's like photos of my dog with her in there. and um, Yeah, it's a really like nice read about me raising her, but also about a bunch of other like environmental challenges and solutions that I found along the way. Um, and it's very much like a personal story about my connection to to bungee. So yeah, it's it's a it's a really I'm really stoked for it to come out because I I think that a lot of people will learn a lot about kangaroos and other Australian wildlife just from reading it.
0: Absolutely. It's a great vehicle to uh educate with. Yeah,
1: it's um it took me a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but but it, the other great thing is, I mean, in the era that you were doing that, you have your cell phone handy, so you're probably documenting her ad nauseum. And so you have all the raw material for it.
1: That's right. I have, I have so many videos um, of her, <laughs> which I'm going to be posting a lot like around the release of the book because yeah, I, I was like sharing the story a lot on social media at the time. It was literally like at the start of Instagram um, and I'm excited to like relive it and reshare them. Um, Cause I look back now and it's, it's pretty crazy. Like I, at the time i had a lot of people going like wow this is insane like especially from overseas they'd never even seen yeah. a kangaroo and they were like really invested in it and it's it's so nice because a lot of wildlife carers do everything that they can to look after kangaroos and raise wildlife and it's not always a success story um like sometimes animals just don't survive by no fault of wildlife carers and it's beautiful because it's such a happy ending. Like Bungie's like living her best life. Um, And yeah, I miss, I miss her in my everyday life, but it's like the best case scenario where she's yeah. yeah. So it's, it's been really nice to like get that delivered and, and have it and have that story like ready to ready to go out there.
0: How does she show affection?
1: Same as like a dog, like cuddles you, like makes little noises I mean, she used to sleep like down my top, like she used to sleep here Um, because it's like it mimics like a mum kangaroo's pouch where they can hear like a heartbeat. It's like a calm area. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she's just like it's even more affectionate than a dog. Like she like boof my dog out the way, like grab right onto my legs, like always trying to get up and just like be on you, like cuddling you all the yeah. time. Um that's what it's like when you hand raise them they are just very affectionate um they lick you it's like yeah it's a lot of like other pets I guess but um but yeah obviously kangaroos in the wild are like they're so family orientated so they're like that to each other but they're very cautious and and skittish around humans for good reason um but when you hand raise one and and your mom, it's it, it's a completely different story.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the other huge part of your life for the last seven years has been, um, an environmental charity that you started. Yeah. Can you, can you tell me through that? How, first of all, how does one even start an environmental charity? Man, it's, so, and, and, uh, it's
1: so much, so much work to start. I was like very ambitious, like in my early twenties and was like, I guess I was doing a lot of uh, like ambassador work and volunteering for a lot of really big charities and companies, um uh, sorry, environmental charities and nonprofits and that do amazing work. But they're especially in the marine space, um it's quite overwhelming. And I was always I'm the sort of person that needs to know like where the money's going, like if if it's going to the right places. And I think when there's these huge nonprofits that are like global, um, it's hard to know if everything's legit a lot of the time. And I was like, okay, what I want to do is because I guess in South Australia, where I was at the time, and in Australia, there's a lot of environmental issues that are it, it's very like outdated in the way that people go about dealing with them or managing them. And so I was kind of running into a lot of. Um, a lot of situations where I was like, wow, no one's talking about this or no one thinks this is an issue or I don't think this is the way we should be doing this. And it's because my mindset was like new um, and a lot of the bigger nonprofits that I was working with were run by people in their, like, 50s and 60s from a different generation. And nowadays, like, I look around and I'm like, wow, there's so many people I agree with now. It's so awesome. And so going back like ten years, even I was like, oh, all of these things need to be talked about." And the only way I saw like that being possible for me with any legitimacy was uh, starting my own nonprofit. And that was simply because there was a couple of really small, basic, like grassroots level causes that I wanted to talk about. Um, and those were at the time we were doing like dive cleanups and getting like hooks and line and stuff off jetties and beach cleanups like marine debris work as well as uh talking openly about seismic testing affecting um the whales and the whale canyons off south australia which is run by oiling oil and gas and then on top of that um wildlife rescue so wildlife rescue is something in australia that like millions of people are involved in which is awesome but again there's um, state to state it's different and people kind of get too wrapped up in all the rules in some areas where they instead of just helping an animal they just won't help at all because they don't want to get involved. Whereas I was always just I just wanted to like spread the right message about what's best for the animal and what's best for the environment and not have any of the political roadblocks associated with like say some of the nonprofits profits I was working with might be sponsored by like an oil and gas company and i was like i don't want to have to speak in a way that's like letting them off the hook kind of thing so i was like i'm just going to start my own nonprofit then i can tell the story how i want um and i started like a community based like group and page and then i was just like oh my god what have i done like I had to get like a board and lawyers and a constitution and pay so much money to even start. And the only way that I was getting, like we were getting donations and still is through like social media. Literally my audience was, I've been like, (laughs) dog's growling. I've been like, okay, this is a cause that needs help. Let's like either push funds to it through like using my foundation as kind of a... Um, funnel for other foundations too, like other small ones that need money like in dire situations such as like bushfires where someone might have just lost everything at a wildlife rescue and I'll be like, okay, we'll funnel that through us and give it to them. Um, So I've always kind of done it like case to case with the foundation and in 2016 I had a dog called Balu. Um, I named him after the bear off of uh, the Jungle Book <laughs> um, and he was the most beautiful dog and so sadly in like in the following year, uh, sorry, in the year before I launched the foundation, he died of from poisoning which was one of the main driving factors um, why I named it after him and why I started it because in Australia there's this poison that uh, is used where it's, it's banned everywhere else in the world. It's used by parks and wildlife, by farmers um, to control anything they want. It basically kills everything in its path, but their the original um, wording around, it's called 1080. It's basically a deadly poison to any carnivore. And if it's dosed differently, it can be deadly to birds, um, kangaroos, everything. And it's, Australia's got these really outdated like management practices for wild, for wildlife, for everything, where they'll protect profits like over anything else and using a poison is like cost effective to them but it has like huge flow on effects to like heaps of non-target species um, and birds will pick it up and carry it into different areas and then a lot of people's pet dogs pick it up and there's no antidote like so if you take your dog to the vet there's it's a death sentence like there's no um no way to tell where it is no way to tell no way to save your dog if they've had it and it's something that's so so outdated and i would say like 80% of the people that i know are heavily against it and the only people that aren't against it are people that don't know enough about how bad it is um and they use it to so if someone's got, like, a sheep farm, they're trying to protect their sheep, they'll use it to kill, like, wedge-tailed eagles, um, dingoes, like, anything that's going to take their lambs, um, and it's just very outdated. And and I was, like, blown away at how much that is all over Australia, and I was like, wow, that is so archaic and backward. Um, And just the mentality and from kind of that generation around, like, wildlife management is seems insane to me and now I'm friends with a lot of amazing other nonprofits that are in the same mindset as me like all about using non-lethal methods all about coexisting with wildlife and letting wildlife coexist with each other and form like the ecosystem balance instead of us just interfering all the time and so we are partnered with like quite a few other orgs that are like really fighting on that front um on like land-based conservation and um kind of inspiring like farmers to change their management ways and, and the use of their land and all of that kind of stuff so I wanted to have Balu Blue as like a foundation that is is not strictly reliant on like one area we have the option to expand it into different areas but we always will have two categories like which is obviously land and then sea and over the last few years we've had um we've been at some really specific like programs and we've been involved in specific campaigns and, and moving forward, we've got like quite a exciting like structure ahead. But again, like I haven't ever tried to get like corporate partnerships, <laughs> which is crazy because we could do a lot, but I do hope to get some like well-aligned larger companies so that we can, we can do what we're doing um, and help more animals.
0: Do you, have you hired anybody? Uh, to work in that organization
1: we have like it's majority volunteer run like we don't okay including me (laughs) i we're not big enough to like hire staff as such we have like a board um and we have people that um like tap in and out to help us with social media um and we like with campaigns and and the projects we run at the moment it's all voluntary like we don't have we don't have paid roles yet it's all like for the love of it at the moment but i do hope um, that we can get funding to employ some people that will be very good at their job and helping us get to where
0: we want to go for sure. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Uh, everything that you're involved in is a full-time job, and even man hiring those people, and I know <laughs> managing that staff and allocating those funds and the budgets and sitting in the meetings in order to do all that stuff. I mean, it really is a recipe for burnout, to be perfectly honest,
1: which is what I do constantly. <laughs> Yeah. But, um, but no I'm getting better at like. um also I'm the sort of person that because I started it and I know where it wants to go and I'm really strict with like our ethics and morals and I never want anyone to come on board that's like doesn't agree with those things um or has the wrong intentions um I always am like you know what I'm just gonna do it <laughs> um right which but now we've actually got some great help this year from like some people uh, that have been helping me a lot for like the next steps and getting some awesome like um, projects up and running for next year and collaborating the foundation's values with like the trips that I run to like sea whales, like the free dive trips because one of my biggest, um, one of our biggest like pillars in Barlow Blue, like the foundation is, only supporting ethical wildlife tourism, um, which is something that I've been a huge advocate for. And one of the main areas is seeing, like, whales in the wild, not going to sea world, not going to sea aquariums where people are buying a ticket to see them in captivity. Um, instead, I run trips to go see them doing their thing um, and you get to be in the water with them. It's life-changing. It's so cool. Um So I do that once a year and I'm really excited like to expand that over the next few years where people can come and be involved in that, in that way as well.
0: Yeah. So Brinkley uh, (laughs) expeditions is what you're referring to, uh, Yes, which is a logical, I mean, it's a logical uh, kind of diversion for your business or for your career, which is you, you're going to be traveling. I would imagine you probably have a lot of obligations professionally or opportunities professionally yeah. to go do a lot of this stuff anyways. Yeah. And with your social media following, there's people that want to participate with you, whether they're volunteers or just tourists, right?
1: That's right. And so I've had a lot of opportunities to take yeah, take like my audience to different places. Um and because of COVID in 2020, I was like, okay, I'm going to do like these three trips. And usually I would only do like one or two maybe trips a year because they're so um involved, like in the planning, yeah. in the in the actual trip itself and in the aftermath. Um, and but because of COVID this year, I got three trips in one year, three huge trips. <laughs> and so on top of um, like say the brands I work with for surfing or diving, where I'm maybe going and telling a story and they're they're kind of like supporting that story this year I've done a lot of hosting where I've um, launched a trip that's very intensive and involved and then I've sold spots um, as a part of my expeditions company and my goal always with the expeditions was to uh, collaborate that with a foundation um, which in the future can offer like volunteer opportunities or pathways into you know marine tourism or marine conservation Um, and so This year I actually went to Antarctica. 35 people came with me to Antarctica in peak whale season. Um, And it was insane, as you can imagine. Um, So I had that in February, which was like an expedition on its own, specifically for like whale watching and Antarctic wildlife. Um, I spoke on the ship to like the 200 passengers on behalf of the foundation about... Um, like an ocean conservation presentation specifically focused on uh, it was mostly on like ghost nets, um, how we can lessen our impact, how places like Antarctica are being affected by climate change and how we can help. Um, And then just recently in July I had the opportunity to take uh, 15 people to South Africa where I've been a few times to be very hands-on with a few really renowned wildlife conservation orgs um, that I'm, like, closely, like, I really care about those causes, um, even though it's not in marine. And so we spent 10 days doing, like, volunteering at Care for Wild, which is South Africa's biggest rhino orphanage, where their biggest threats are poaching, um, snaring, and we were, like, feeding rhinos. Like helping with day to day tasks. Um, the the sanctuary itself is protected by like a military, huge military grade anti poaching unit, mountain unit on horses, canine unit. Um, we learned all about the, their defense. We learned all about the threats that they face, uh, along with caring for the animals. We then went into Kruger and we did like learned about tracking wild dogs um and obviously we saw all the wildlife really up close and personal so the people that came on that trip it's it's more of a I always try to if I'm going to run a trip it's going to be like it's not going to be like a your normal wildlife holiday like you're going to be you're going to be getting like hands-on and up close and personal and learning more about the reality behind the places where we're at and people go home with like a completely different mindset and respect for everything and I think that's always what I've wanted to portray with everything I'm doing so it's been really rewarding but um obviously it's also very exhausting (laughs) so next year like for example I'll probably only run one trip or maybe two not three um because that's obviously in addition to everything else I do so it's just kind of something that I love to do and then I'm like I'll take people and then I and then you forget that of how involved it is, um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a really really busy year. So home it feels like heaven to me at the moment.
0: <laughs> right. Yep. Well, you were talking about having partnerships in the surf world and the yes. uh, free dive world, and I wanted to know how the relationship with Rourke developed. Yeah. And, and then also like, what benefit or what value do they add for you and what you're doing, and then what benefit or value do you add for them? What does that exchange look like?
1: Sure so i mean my childhood between like ages 10 and 20 was competitive surfing it was like what i did before i went to university it was like what i wanted to do um and i lost interest in that side because i i was kind of like well this isn't for me it's it's losing the fun in it for me i had perfect empty waves in australia with marine life all around me and i was i was going and surfing in heats where the surf was bad and I wasn't having a good time um and over the last 10 years I I steered away like I've, I've always surfed I've always surfed like most days or a couple times a week it's remained a huge part of my life but I steered away from the surfing industry for a long time because for a while there it wasn't the path I wanted to go down in regards to the brands and the values that I represented like being environmentally friendly, which seems crazy because the surfing industry relies on the health of the ocean. Um, and only in the last five years I've seen a huge flip. Like it's now, you know, now a lot of people are like, okay, we got to care, we got to make ethical products, we got to make sustainable products. And so for years I said no to a lot of partnership opportunities because people were like, okay, you're now respected in the conservation space your whole priority is conservation and, you know, marine conservation. Um, And so for a brand, I'm beneficial to them because people, if if I'm promoting a product, people trust my opinion because I'm really cutthroat. with. If I don't agree with something, I'm upfront about it. Um, I don't promote things I don't believe in. I don't promote things that I don't think are wholly supporting everything I stand for. Um, And... So I've only ever worked with like two or three partners, and usually that's if I'm working with a brand or a partner, it has to be like a they have to support me as a whole, not just one part. Like like my, me as a freediver, and I, I'm kind of like a surfer and a freediver, but then I also do my conservation work, and by having some form of income from a brand or from content for me, that means that I can then go and do that work and live. Um, And so that's a benefit for me, um, obviously. But also the benefit for me is telling the surfing industry, which is their audience, or the freediving industry, or the like I work with a watch company as well that um, have like an audience of entirely, an entirely different audience. And my opportunity there is to tell them about, like they might see a video of me freediving with a whale or, or surfing in a spot and there's all these animals around and my opportunity there is to tell them the story and make them realise it's a way bigger picture than what they may already know. Um, and with Rock, I they were like immediately kind of on my radar because I always like working with companies that are not so they're not like big corporate juggernauts, you know, like kind of in and that work with just anybody. Um, And, you know, they're just based around sort of like certain, they don't really go after values, a lot of the big companies, whereas I always look for companies that are focusing on like sustainable products, products that last, Um, they're open to uh, like working with you on signature ranges um, and they're interested in supporting your story. So like, my story is quite unique. It's not like other people in the surfing world um, where I live, what I do, the fact that I also dive. Um, and so I wanted to work with a brand that can like help me capture that story. So if we're going and shooting like a product range or something, we can go somewhere that I would love to go anyway and we can tell the story for their brand and have their clothes that also are aligned with me or, or surfwear or whatever. And But the story is is, you know, where we are, what we're doing and what I'm passionate about. And and, and that means that we're telling a broader audience that story. And so Rourke, when I originally had meetings with them, they were, uh, A, they're just the nicest people and so genuine. And that was really, really, like, nice nice for me to be involved with already. And I think the first trip I went on... um, when I met Dana like we just became great friends already and that's like <laughs> it. it's like meeting people through the company that immediately become friends it's like it's epic it's super fun for me and yeah. the other people that they work with also I think are epic and telling their own unique story and they're not following the that they're, they're telling their own story and following a, their own path they're not trying to conform with with anything they're unique in their own way and I really like being involved with brands that um, like focus on having unique individuals kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Good answer. Um, For the uh, Chippa Wilson fans out there, (laughs) do you, can you tell the story of the first time you guys met?
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So we, we've been like, uh, I guess, like friends for a long time through a bunch of different things through surfing, I guess, but like not, Um, but we've always been like, you know, he's been off doing his career and I've been off doing my career and they never crossed paths up until like 2019, 2020 when um, right before COVID and we actually uh, were both flying through the airport, the same airport, and we like stopped and like hadn't actually met each other in real life before. Um, And it was so weird because we'd been like FaceTiming and, talking and trying to trying to meet up because he's from the east coast and I was over west and he was always in america and doing all these trips and um we had a coffee and it was so weird because we had like 15 minutes and then he had to go to his flight and it just like clicked straight away. I was like, "Oh, that we're going to be like either really good friends or this is definitely going to be a thing." And then literally that happened and we come back from the next trip and met up again and we spent a couple of days together and it was just like It's just, like, one of those things that was, like, a definite thing. Um, So that happened and we're like, okay, we're going to be together and then COVID happened. (laughs) COVID happened and Western Australia turned into, like, its own island and locked the rest of Australia out. And so Chipper um, got locked away from me (laughs) for five months and he couldn't get to Western Australia and... We ended up just like obviously being pretty much pen pals and talking over the phone and just planning everything for when he could get here. And he ended up having to do two weeks isolation in Perth to get into Western Australia. And then he got here and then that was it. We've been together since he we've lived together since and and oh, this life since. Yeah. So it's um it's pretty epic. He's actually outside right now landscaping. <laughs>
0: nice <laughs> was he was he in indonesia with you
1: yes yeah and africa he came so oh good he he came to antarctica um he came to south africa uh, and yeah we went to indo on a surf trip together so yeah it was
0: awesome i was wondering if that indo trip was an actual work trip it was a ho- it
1: was a holiday for once
0: good for you
1: we both have had such back to back stuff on we're like let's book a surf trip where it's just a holiday and um and so and so we did and it was epic and we had 10 days there um the first 3 days there was really good waves and then unfortunately it went pretty flat but it didn't matter cuz we were like it was just nice to have a break
0: i know i I hesitate to say this on air just because so many of our listeners just work regular office jobs and um, don't get enough time to surf, but I totally understand what you're talking about. When your life revolves around surfing, if you get the opportunity to be somewhere and not have to surf and just relax, it's actually, it's a vacation of itself.
1: Yeah. Well, also, because the first three days, like I surf a lot at home too but um also for us it was like we mostly just wanted to go somewhere and it not be a work trip so like
0: yeah
1: it's hard exactly because I'm the same because I don't want to sound spoiled because my life is great but like people don't realize I guess how much goes on behind the scenes um and you're always so on like every trip for me where I'm working is is so intense it's like it's twenty four seven, um and so we wanted to plan a trip that was Like since we met, we haven't had a trip that's not been work for one of us. So we booked it as just like a trip where we don't have any obligations. We're just there to surf and do nothing else. Or like if there's no surf, just read a book or something. Um, Yeah, actually before when I got back from Africa, (laughs) um, we, Chipper and I and one of my best friends, Nush, came to help me film um, the whole experience and at the first place we volunteered at, because we were very hands-on with the rhinos and everything else um there's obviously a risk of like getting bitten by ticks and parasites and and everything else and one of the most common things is called tick african tick bite fever and i was wearing bug spray and everything every day but uh we got home and all of my lymph nodes and all of Chipper's lymph nodes were all really swollen and I was like oh no this is definitely it and then my whole group got it so like 100% hit rate everyone that was with me got tick bite fever so I feel like I'm still like my immune system's still recovering because it basically just attacks your you take antibiotics and it gets rid of it but like it flattens you for like a month. Um, it's kind of like the same as getting like malaria or Ross River. Like, um, and so I feel like I've been, my poor immune system and body's been like, let me rest. Um, yeah. Cause it took a long time for me to get over that. And I kind of was just getting over it in Indo. And then now that I'm home, I feel like I'm almost better, but not hundred percent. Um but it was kind of worth it to be able to feed the rhinos and everything. <laughs> <laughs> the um,
0: memory of the memory of the rhino thing will last way longer, I'm sure.
1: Yes, exactly. But um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been an amazing year, but um, definitely takes its toll energy wise sometimes. Um, but yeah, it was it was nice to have a break. And actually, this weekend, some of my closest friends and like family are coming up for my like belated birthday that I've never been here. So we're going to have them all here for a week and take them out in the water and go surf and have like a week of fun.
0: So very excited. Good. Well, the final question for everybody is just uh, what was the last surfboard that you rode or who do you get, who do you get boards from?
1: So Chipper rides so many different boards. And so since meeting him, I have definitely expanded my Range of boards. I used to be like such a short border um, as a Grom. And as I've gotten older, I've like loved riding different boards. Like if it's tiny, I'll ride a log or I'll ride a 20 or a super high volume, like mid length, just to surf different and cruise. Um, and over the last few years, I've definitely been trying out some like mid length single fins from like Gato Hero, who's like a Japanese shaper. Um, Absolutely love his boards. My long board is um, from him as well. And I've got a couple of really amazing twin fins off of um, a couple of shapers Chip works with. One of them, uh, they're called Speed Machines. Um, I think it's pronounced Nuevo Camino Speed Machines on Instagram, so I have a really epic board from them. Um, Chipper's main shaper from his, like, childhood, Maddie Hurworth, shaped me some short boards, which I wrote in Indo. Um Neil Purchase Jr., I've got a I've got um a really sick 20 from him as well. And then just in Indo uh recently, uh Josh Kerr was there with Sierra, his daughter with us, and he let me try out a few album boards. And oh my god, I had the funnest time writing them. And so it was good because I think I've just been writing boards that are I- like 20s especially, that are too too big for, for me in small surf. And I wrote a couple of his boards that he recommended me try and I, like, fell in love with them. So I'm about to order some of them because it's perfect for yeah. where we are as well.
0: Yeah, we um, I actually have a podcast studio at Album Surfboards here in San Clemente.
1: Oh, no way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so we have a good relationship with them. And, uh, yeah, I advocate for those boards too.
1: They're so fun. I had... I had the funnest surfs and then the day we left and the surf like wasn't that good. It was like kind of like small and not much power behind the wave. And yeah, I was like, what are these things? (laughs) I was like, I need all these ASAP. So yeah, I'm definitely um, loving riding twin fins. That's for sure.
0: Good, good. I'm glad to hear you've expanded the horizons outside the shortboard category.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll only really ride a thruster if it's like big, like six to eight foot and and I need to like be able to hold on (laughs) but um but yeah other than that i'll pretty much write a 20 every time
0: (laughs) yeah yeah epic well i will direct everybody to your website and socials and all that sort of stuff and post production but is there anything else that we didn't say that you want to direct people to
1: um i mean that's everything i think i think the main um yeah the main the main like stories of everything i've been talking about and and links are all on my website my book's coming out in October, really. Um, it's very much like a passion project like that I hope people read and, and care more about animals from. So the more people that read it, the better for our wildlife. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to keep doing what I'm doing. And yeah, thanks, I am too. thanks for having me on.
0: No, gladly. And I appreciate all of your work. <laughs>
1: thanks so much.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. All right, chat soon.
1: All right, have a good day.
0: Bye. All right, you too tomorrow, I'm tired from all the time I spend. What I still believe in, but none of my talk ever seems to get me. Follow at Brinkley Davies on Instagram and BrinkleyDavies.com. The visuals that she captures are mesmerizing and the impact of her work is amplified through your following, liking, and sharing with friends. So go check it all out. Saving Bungie, the book, is available for pre-order now and it'll begin shipping on October 31st, 2023. Uh, just about a month from now, so I've linked to it and everything else that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also see video of this conversation. We're now filming these for YouTube and for Instagram. Just search at Surf Splendor on those apps and uh, you can see us. And it's also the easiest way to share this show with friends. Uh, We are here 10 years on thanks to organic growth through listener support So if everyone listening shared this show with just one person, we could theoretically double our downloads tomorrow. And of course, that would just be huge for us. So share it on socials, rate and review it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And uh, that always helps strangers find the show. And for those people, once they find it, we have hundreds of episodes available to binge right now for free in the archives all available for free thanks to listener support and support of our sponsors like Rourke. Rourke.com is their website so thank you again for that Rourke. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode but until then I'm reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.